David Rydell, and my father was Pat McGuire. What's up, everybody? Uh, so we've got a special. This is a special episode today. I've got David Rydell here. Uh, you sent me an article that you wrote. Uh, you DM me on Instagram, which was, uh, was I, I the was DMs. Love, <laughs> <laughs> I always love Instagram DMs, like out of the blue, and like uh, you basically said, "Hey, I think you'd really like this," and. It wasn't long after that you sent that to me that I started seeing a lot of people starting to post it on social media and, and stuff. But the uh, the article that you wrote was, my dad was a famous alien abductee. I thought he was a joke. Now I'm not so sure. So I think first and foremost, what inspired you to write that article? Because your your dad's becoming a little more famous in a little more wider circles, uh, mm. you know, for a couple of reasons. One, this article. And uh, another thing that we'll be talking about is the last, uh, latest missing 411 documentary. So <laughs> why, how, how did you come about writing this article and what inspired you to do it? Yeah, I been working on a book. Uh, I'm a, a master's student right now. So I'm working on, kind of my thesis and book about my father's experience and sort of how alien abduction narratives are passed and in, mm. in kind of an oral history sort of lens. And what happened was the news broke of the, the UFO whistleblower, David Grush. And I had a professor reach out to me who sort of um, has been uh shepherding me through some of this uh, process. Uh, shout out to Ariel Zebrak. What's up? Um, <laughs> and she said, you should write something about this. Like you should, you should do something. And it didn't escape me that my father's case is sort of, I wouldn't say unknown, but, mm -hmm. but it's definitely since the early eighties kind of really fallen back into the, uh, to the noise of a lot of these cases. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, I'll write the piece. No. And I knew full well that once something told me that once this, once I wrote this, then it was going to have this sort of like snowball effect that people are going to be like, especially locally. Um, it, and bringing back all of this old, like all of the old stories, all the old people, um, people texting me and all this stuff. So I, I knew that when that was going to go down like that, that when I was going to write and publish this piece, that it was going to sort of open this box a little bit. And um, and then I sent it to you because I was like, if I know one person who who's going to be interested, it's going to be Rob. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, man, I, I read it. I sent it to a bunch of people. It's like, oh, you should read this. This is, this is really good. And um. So, so I'm curious with, you know, since like the, you know, the 2017 glowing auras black money article and, you know, the David Grush stuff, how has that changed how you see your father's story? Yeah, that's interesting. I've had a very 
love hate relationship, uh, as mm-hmm. as many can probably imagine with this story. And once it started breaking in the New York Times, and there's sort of that, um, you know, when something like that gets published in the New York Times, all of a sudden people start taking it in a different way. If that mm-hmm. same story was published sort of anywhere else, it kind of has a different ring to it, right? Um, and so I think it, it's funny because I was on this path already when the news story broke. So I was maybe middle way through like my research, just sort of like getting into the story and figuring out like what's what. Um, because all growing up, it's, you know, I think you start engaging with the story in just taking it at face value and sort of believing what people are telling you. And there sort of, as I allude to in the uh, news article, there's a point in time where you, you start disbelieving everything um, as everybody sort of does it, not everybody, but um, as sort of our culture interaction interacts with it. And, and then I finally decided that I was going to just like jump in and try to like lay it out flat as best <laughs> as I could and, and make some, make some judgment calls for myself Um and that right about midway through is when the New York Times article dropped and it starts making you go back through and just double double check some things mm-hmm. make sure that you didn't judge too quickly on this aspect or that aspect. Um, and and that's sort of been my relationship with it all the way up through a lot of this like governmental stuff um, that's breaking with Congress is just just, you know, crossing some T's and dotting some I's to make sure that I'm not judging too quickly. Um and some things that I, I put away as as being completely disbelief, kind of pulling those back out and just re- reassessing some of those things. And I think that's largely the impact that that article has had on a lot of people. I think it's it's introduced more people to the topic, and it has also allowed people to reassess it, give it kind of more of a serious nature i i would say a lot of people need to come at it probably with a little more skepticism just because of we've been down this road before you know and and we're basically you know in the middle of the series telling that story and uh we're going to take a you know a slight detour and tell your dad's story which is I don't think it's directly connected, but it's right there to the side, you know, mm-hmm. and, it, and it it does play its part because there are players in that in the story that played a part in your dad's story. And, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about some of those players here. Um, you kindly sent me your your thesis, which, you know, I read over the course of like four days. And it's, you know, it's it's a really intense and really well-written story. For someone who is not from Wyoming, I think a lot of us have this view that like Wyoming is this kind of place at a time where it's like kind of like living in the past a little bit or, you know, just (laughs) like never modernized or anything like that. You talk about the Wyoming way. So like, how would you describe Wyoming and the Wyoming way? Yeah, Wyoming that plays such a, almost an amplifying effect to to my father's story because i mean it is it is still cowboy through and through and Mm -hmm. even transplants who come to wyoming i feel like 
don that cowboy as well because that's one of the perks of coming to wyoming is is the cowboy the cowboy thing Mm -hmm. um and growing up that's what pat um was i mean he was a cowboy even even in the the harsh most harshest of times he was still sort of one of us right and it's funny how that's kind of a it's a double-edged sword for a lot of people that like live here is is sort of the environment requires you to, to be this tough, you know, uh, uh, do it yourself. Um, you know, maybe a little bootstrap cowboy bootstrap, right. A little bit. Mm -hmm. And, and then on the flip side, there's that strong community still that, um, you know, doesn't want to see other people suffer and still, um, has this interesting kind of play with other people's lives where they don't want to interject too much but they also feel very bad when things bad things are happening to people. Right. So it's, it has this, this weird kind of double play and, you know, my father sort of finds himself in, uh, you know, born and raised here in Wyoming, raised on a, a, a farm and ranch um, and being brought up that he's going to have his own farm and ranch, just like his brothers and his cousins and everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. And that that's almost like on autopilot until until it's not right yeah yeah just just reading about it it, reading about wyoming was like it was a very i could relate but it was just something definitely out of my depth where it's like okay yeah this is an alien world to me man this is (laughs) (laughs) alien to that's the aliens themselves (laughs) i had someone say that they said if aliens are gonna show up anywhere i've driven through wyoming that's where they're gonna show up uh (laughs) yeah yeah, because it definitely has that vibe to it a little bit um especially when you start getting i mean wyoming's filled with nothing for the most part but especially when you start really getting out into the middle of nowhere um it, it starts really having that vibe. Yeah. No, uh, I, I, I like I could picture it in my head and it's like, yeah. And then it's like seeing, you know, some of the pictures of the ranch and all that stuff. It's like, oh, wow, this really does feel like the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's how it was. I mean, I grew up in Bosler, which is mm-hmm. 10 miles from um, Pat's ranch. And it it in. Bosler's 20-ish miles from Laramie, which is a population of 30,000. So we're we're sort of out there in the middle of nowhere either. And the the wind and the weather and the winter can really just have that isolating effect. And it's almost cliche at this point to be like, you know, of course a farmer is going to be visited, right? Like uh it's mm-hmm. it's it's the uh independence of everything, right? It's the it's nope. the farmer that but I mean that isolation is real and those those crystal clear nights out in Wyoming with zero light pollution lend to interesting things happening in those skies for sure. Absolutely, I can relate because I I live in the Adirondacks, which is probably one of the very few places in New York that isn't light polluted because there's just not a lot of people that that live in this area and it's pretty well preserved. It's like the one area in New York that. Um, you know, it can't be touched without going through to you. You have to go through like the, the Adirondack Park Association. You have to go through the EPA and everything. So it's like kind of hard to build around here. But um, I, I could definitely relate. So I think if people know your dad's story, they don't know um, in, in particular, like. The stuff that came after 
in, in the the well in particular mm. um and and i think you have definitely written about that uh very well one of the things that i wanted to ask you is about your upbringing because your upbringing is i don't know how to describe it because that's again that's something that's completely alien to me but um i was just wondering if you'd talk a little bit about your upbringing you know as much as you as you want to and yeah just like really get into like kind of give you a bird's eye view a little bit yeah because uh would you say that you were raised in a cult uh yeah like um so you certainly don't call it a cult growing up mm -hmm. i feel like that's pretty typical with people who are from cults is they never mm -hmm. they never look at their situation and say like yeah that's that was 100 percent a cult i was in um, and, and that's similar, similar to, to my story is growing up, um, first to get it out of the way, we, I sort of grew up, not sort of, I did grow up in a, uh, polygamous <laughs> sister wives situation in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. And this polygamous situation was sort of the genesis of that was with Pat McGuire, my father. And that that quote unquote tradition carried on after Pat sort of fell on some really hard times and ends up and he ends up homeless in the town of Laramie, Wyoming, as the the sole homeless person in that town. And obviously everybody in that town knows Pat's story in in sort of the late 80s as it starts to kind of fall apart. Um meanwhile, I was born in 1986 and um we're living in Basler, which is an old railroad town that's more or less abandoned at this point the the population was truly just our family and i have eight brothers and sisters slash cousins if you will and we're we're sort of raised with knowing that 10 miles east of basler that when the end of the world comes that that's where we need to be that pat's well that um, he dug um, miraculously is is going to sort of nourish the last of humanity through the end times through like a climate catastrophe, and we we are we are sort of sticking around for it. it, it and at times it's interesting because sort of that more or less that goal wasn't always stated so clearly. Mm -hmm. Um. As as is often the case, the the chaos and and sort of abuse and alcohol and all of these things sort of muddle the message. But more or less, we remained out in Basler by some weird confluence of fate and and Pat and aliens and all of it mixed together to make sure that that we were ready when it came. Um, and some of that, some of that drifts away as we get older and not, not maybe not purposefully by my mother's and, and stepfather and everything, but I think it's sort of, it sort of wilts as, as time goes on that, that ceases to be the focus so much. Um, my mother doesn't live out in Basra anymore, but, um, my sort of aunt mother does and my stepfather does still. And so, we all pretty much live within the area, though, still. My eight brothers, sisters, and cousins. Reading about it, it felt very small. It felt very um, 
cramped. It, it felt like a very, it felt like the most rural isolation that I've, you know, kind of like really read about because, because like I looked it up, you know, I, I just did like a Google search on Bosler and I was like, Oh, that's not, that's, that's really like nothing on the map. It's, it's like barely, you know, it's, this is barely anything there. Um, I'm curious because, and I don't know how to put this like in any, in, in a kind way, but the story with you is that your parents moved out to Bosler after you were born. Is that correct? Yeah. What sort of ends up happening is when I'm born, I, I if, if people will probably notice, I don't have Pat's last name. Um, yeah. And that was sort of by design. Pat seemed to at some point in time become more or less convinced that I was kind of what the community calls an, an hybrid and that his last name could not be tied to me. Otherwise, authorities would find out. And a year after I'm born, my mother sort of gets cast out. The the polygamous cult kind of falls apart in its original conception. And I really have trouble explaining this. Mm-hmm. My mom's living in Laramie. Pat's living in Laramie. Um, my aunt's living in Laramie. And the sister wife cult in Laramie. Pat's already lost the ranch at this point in time. And he's he's fighting to get it back. And, and running for governor at the same time. <laughs> and she sort of gets cast out. It falls apart, as many would guess. And it's the strangest. I, it, I really have trouble explaining how this works. My mother and I are living in a trailer that doesn't have heat um, and just has electricity. And it's the worst imaginable situation you can think of for a single mom. And she... She even has trouble explaining how this happens. She hates it for like a moment living in this trailer. And she goes and gets an apartment. And she happens to meet the one person who's still living in Bosler. She moves out of this apartment. They court each other. And then they sort of move back out into Bosler. Where then my mom brings my aunt to Bosler to sort of restart this um this cult more or less and now we are closer to pat's ranch than even pat is and and we sort of waited out from then in this abandoned town that's like right next to his land it's it's such a weird thing to me because it is like the main figure of this cult is no longer part of it yeah and yet it reforms into something else it's like nothing i've ever really read before what what was it that your mother believed in in your in your your aunt mother what did what was it that they believed like the the interesting thing about pat's story is that uh and and we'll get into this 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 figure in in a little bit but um after he goes through hypnosis like he comes through with this story about uh protecting israel and like it becomes a very religious thing 
what was the primary belief of this cult? Because I, 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 I even don't, I don't really know. And I, and I don't even know if it's easy to, uh, to put across, but what was it that they all believed in, um, in this cult? You want me to start with like how his abduction sort of the message is given through the abduction? Yeah, go right ahead. Yeah. So during the abduction after the, after Leo Sprinkle hypnosis, um, Pat understands his abduction as taking place with Michael, the archangel. Mm. Um, now this, this figure kind of morphs over the years from just an extraterrestrial as, as we sort of imagine them to be pretty close to, to being a full out angel. Um, and Michael, the archangel explains to Pat that he is, he is needed for several junctions in in time and and now being one junction in time the israel thing being another junction in time yeah and this junction he needs to purchase land in a certain section of land just next to basler and that they will set this land up to be a safe haven during the apocalypse pat purchases this land with everybody telling him that it, it truly is worthless because it's got no water. Wyoming says the high plains desert. Um, it has no water, so he gets it cheap. And everybody calls him crazy because you can't really farm a ranch on a piece of land with no water. He ends up striking the largest artesian well in, in sort of the region. Uh, and he understands this as, as Michael the Archangel, that they instruct him that they're bringing the water to this land. Then he... This the, it sort of continues. The prophecy continues that he's supposed to marry three women and have kids with them, and that this this sort of sect was supposed to um, be ready for the end times. And he meets my aunt. She's a college student going to the University of Wyoming. He meets her. She's a waitress at a place where he gets coffee. And she sort of brings my mother from Colorado to come stay with them where they're sort of, they become convinced of this story from him, this, this abduction prophecy and they start having kids. And while they're, uh, they're doing this kid thing, they're, they're handing out flyers um, out as, as this sort of prophecy moves forward, it becomes very wrapped up in abortion and the sort of the politics of the time. To some degree, They're, they start, you know, uh, stashing food for the end times in a cave. Pat's battling with the government to to re- get his land back. And they, my mother and aunt, totally buy this 100%. They're sending letters to Reagan warning him of this. They're sending letters to Ted Kennedy um, everything that you would expect of very fundamentalist uh, religious people um, that the the aliens, Michael the Archangel, have warned what was coming and that that land was was very valuable to to all of humanity, not just the government. I, I, I even have a tough time like processing it in my head and how someone can go down that path, but it's like. I mean, when he when he goes and he he builds that well, he hasn't been hypnotized. And for some reason, he knows that 
he has to go out to that piece of land and it is that well is kind of an anomaly it it yeah. is it's very strange it, yeah but at, like that to, to me that is the strangest thing about this because the well does exist i think if it weren't for that well i've always had this decision that if it weren't for this that well my father's mm-hmm. story sort of fades as it's like maybe a lot of stories do in this situation but that well is so strange and to this day so coveted by the people who own it and uh, like uh, and are using it that it it sort of grants second life to the story and and makes it um very very strong as it turned out for for the audience who owns the well now yeah so currently the university of wyoming owns the land and the well um and the university of wyoming was the employer of leo sprinkle at the time the university uses it for experimental um farming and ranching uh a ton of ton of research is being done on that land right now I've been out there several times since then. The, the water well is still in operation. They're still there, you know, using it, obviously. One of the main reasons that people, like in at least, you know, UFO enthusiasts know about that well now is because of David Politis's latest documentary, Missing 411, The UFO mm-hmm. Connection, which I've got opinions about by <laughs> warning he gets the location of the well wrong. <laughs> yes. Don't use yes. his maps. Don't use his maps. No, don't don't use his maps. So I'm curious how how did it make you feel when you when you oh my god but saw that uh you know that documentary like uh how did you come away feeling after seeing that? Yeah, I mean at first I was really glad. I was really happy. I saw um, the missing 411 section, it's only about five minutes. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like, it's cool that someone remembers this story and gets it out there, even though um, obviously Rob can attest now after his research that it's it's very, it's putting it glossed over is is very, that's, I think that's being kind to, mm-hmm. to the research done for, for Pat's story. But I was, I mean, I was happy uh, when I saw it because Truly, my goal for for doing this project was to to not only for myself to understand what happened date by date, year by year, but also to to give try to push his story out a little bit farther for the people who who really care about this stuff and are researchers and want to know and want to dive in. So to push it out and and I saw missing four one one is just one more aspect of that. Um that goal right and then mm. dave says last name for me politis politis yeah. politis uh when my article releases he puts out this sort of response i mean when i tell you that this ruins my my week like it it crushed me mm. um because he in in no amount of turns sort of like chides me for this this article that i write um and and I understand sort of kind of some of the angles that he was coming from, um, but it's you know it's one two thousand word article in you know the Huffington Post. I'm not allowed to write a hundred thousand word book to describe what happened. Um, but he's he's very, he has a very strong reaction to this uh, to to my article and and 
it made me rethink sort of uh, his his relationship and interaction with the story to to now thinking maybe it wasn't just um, his his glossing over the story wasn't kind of or maybe it was an accident. He found the story and then sort of interacts with it in a very, let's say, interesting way that maybe maybe I don't condone all the way. But uh, but yeah, it uh, the the response sort of had a, uh, it was a good reaction than a very the, the continuum is high. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there is a thing about David Pilatus that, like, when he covers something, it's almost like he takes ownership of it, or he tries to take ownership of the things that he covers, because uh, it's especially with what he covered in that documentary, like, he put his own spin on it, when in reality, if he actually went and did any research on, like, cattle mutilations, like, those connections are there. Like, you know, the snippy, the horse mutilation Mm. it it was the same year that chronic wasting disease popped up it's Mm. the same year that uh foot and mouth disease over in uh the uh uk started popping up so it's like those connections were there he just did a really stupid job of like trying to connect them yeah seeing his response was um yeah it was was some shit yeah it was definitely some shit yeah, and especially not to reach out to me after I published the article. I had a ton of people reach out to me um, to ask me more questions about this, to to maybe want to do an interview. And the fact that he doesn't even reach out to me and says, and then and sort of says, "Hey, I want to talk to you about this because I feel very strongly about what's happening." He doesn't do any of this stuff. He just releases this response, this fifteen minutes response, reading the article and then sort of um, taking, you know, taking note of what I have done. <laughs> And and it's not his story to tell, really. Mm. I mean, like at the end of the day, in the in in what he's trying to do, it's really not his story to tell. And and like because of the way that he's trying to use it, mm. um, because yeah. he uses it in rather a stupid way. Um, yeah, that's probably the easiest way to do it. Because like if you look at his map, um, in particular, his uh, his uh cluster map they're all they're, these are all population centers of course yeah, that's right. be missing yeah. people like <laughs> where the cities are dude yeah i can't tell you when i listened to your episode with uh um you guys going over the missing for one it felt it felt like redemption when i didn't have to actually do the redemption i felt <laughs> i felt redeemed i was like yes okay good it's not just me i uh uh yeah it was an awesome episode and i and i i cackled the whole way through with you guys it was amazing yeah so <laughs> but i, I mean one thing it. i always yeah. try to say is pat's story he very much wanted to tell everybody his story he he wanted this um his experiences from his ranch and and the prophecy he wanted to tell anybody he could he didn't charge anybody anybody who came to his ranch he was more than willing to let them stay over to stargaze all of that stuff and i never feel like going through writing this book and then doing doing some of these interviews and stuff like i always remind myself it's not my story either i mean i have interactions with story because i was his son he also had many other children and and this story by definition was meant for everybody um as he saw it so so to for anybody to really take ownership of it seems seems silly especially dave politis to do yeah so. the, yeah just like 
oh, this doesn't make me look good. So I've got to, yeah, I've got to make myself. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the thing that doesn't make Dave Politis good is like uh, one of the guys that he used in this documentary, um, you know, claiming that uh, he's never been found, was found two months before the documentary came out. I so couldn't believe that. I was yeah. shocked. I gasped when, yeah. I, when you reported that. I was like, oh, my God, he should feel ashamed. He really should (laughs) throw in shade. Yeah, Yeah. because like he's getting into this this phase where he can only write so many books about this before he has Mm. to start coming up with a theory. And he's trying to do these little things where like we explore this theory because he's like there was that uh, History Channel thing that he did uh, a few years ago now. I think it was like 2017, 2018. And he was kind of exploring the idea of portals a little bit so then you know he goes into the hunters and he's like oh there's something about hunters and now you know ufo connections in which he miserably failed to establish any kind of ufo connection other than like there's a couple of cases involving elk mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's so fascinating as an outsider looking in because i don't know much uh, about this uh the these connections these phenomenon like as an outsider looking in you think oh man dave's really he's really going to town he's really giving it his all and then mm-hmm. once he touched pat's story it made me realize that oh i you could probably talk to every one of these people who are sort of victims of what's happening and they would be like oh yes this is not actually how it went down it's it's very um you know and you expect that to some degree with movies and tv um but you know Something as people's deaths and missing should be dealt with very sensitive gloves. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, way more sensitive uh, <laughs> means of doing it. Um, yeah, no doubt. So w- one aspect I find interesting and in, in, is that you sent a FOIA request to the FBI looking for, you know, files containing, you know, because your father sent a lot of stuff to like, uh, Reagan and stuff like that mm-hmm. and you know they told you it was going to take over 2,000 days and that's just for the track as I understand it you know I was very I was a rookie going into this and so when I when I do the FOIA request I'm just like I'm gonna I'm just gonna request it and let's let's go to town and mm-hmm. it gets denied because I'm a rookie and I'm, I'm submitting these these things and so I you know I appeal I go through the process and the FBI takes it back up. They say, okay, cool. You've, you've like proven that, you know, uh, Pat McGuire's past. You've proven your relationship to him, all of this stuff, why you would need this. Okay, cool. Let's go. And then they send me a response like three months later that says five and a half years before they could even tell me what track I was on to then wait further. Mm-hmm. I just took this as gospel. Like, of course. that's government for you, I guess. But then when I started researching and reaching out a little bit, I was like, Oh, why is this so strange? Why does it take so long? Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't have an answer for that other than everybody's shorthanded. I I don't know. You know, you hate to jump to conspiracies like right away. Um, But five and a half years is crazy um, to, to wait for his file, which, which I'm sure they had, um, even during the cattle mutilation um, stuff that was going on in his ranch, he's he's very much reporting this to the FBI, reporting this to local authorities. Um, and so at a minimum, there is there has to be filed contact for the, the cattle mutilation 
that were taking place at his ranch at minimum. Um, and if Pat's to be believed the activity that happens after the well, um, maybe they don't keep files on those activities, but, but there was, there was many FBI engagements after that. And, uh, there's gotta be something there. And so mm-hmm. now, now we wait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause like, I've, I've never heard of that either. And, um, like, you know, I know there are, you know, in some cases people being stonewalled in their search mm-hmm. for certain things and being told, well, no, this is of a more sensitive nature, but like given the nature of what your dad was most likely sending them, I don't see where, why it would be or, yeah. you know, of what kind of nature that would be. So like that is, yeah, that's the strangest aspect of it. So how much longer do you have to wait for those those files now or the just that for that track yeah so as far as i understand it's it's still 55 months um before i get an update um and then i was uh, i i got an email from somebody else that um encouraged me to do a foia through the secret service um because they said some a lot of the letters and stuff he was sending to reagan or or senators and stuff might be also held um within their departments as well so um, I might start that process fairly quickly if if 55 months is any kind of norm I might need to wait for. I don't yeah. I you might want to because like that is <laughs> that is um yeah, like so strange, so yeah. very strange. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Leo Sprinkle here. So Leo Sprinkle comes into the case what in like 1978. Yeah. He he basically your your father, from the way I understand it, he filed a report with APRO. Is that mm-hmm. is that correct? That's correct, okay. yeah. Leo Sprinkle decides because he lives in Wyoming, he's gonna come and he's gonna follow up. And one thing I thought was interesting about this is yeah. that he files an um APRO UFO sighting and and someone named Dan Worley shows up. Mm-hmm. And Dan Worley takes this um fills out the ufo report with pat and then he forwards it to leo sprinkle and it takes leo sprinkle i mean he lives 20 miles away it takes a year for leo sprinkle to double back and then come back and interview pat so i don't know if he was very busy but it seems like as wyoming goes that's practically next door neighbors (laughs) It, it is it is so he uh he pays him a visit and like he just randomly conducts a hypnosis session, just like right off the bat. So on the spot, right, right there. With the dogs the barking outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, to, to, to read it the way that you've written it is like, he's a pretty level headed guy. Um, your, your dad's a pretty level headed guy, you know, even after these experiences, it's like, yeah, he's a he's someone who's saying, "Hey, these things show up every night. They're there. You can go look at them." And you mm-hmm. know, a lot of people, including reporters, showed up on the property and claimed to see strange things in the sky. And uh, Leo Sprinkle shows up, and it becomes a completely different thing entirely. And do you know how many times he hypnotized your dad? So as I understand it, he hypnotized him 50 plus times. Holy Jesus. Um, There was a point in time where he 
was hypnotizing. It almost had this, it almost smacked of hypnotizing him in front of colleagues at the university, almost just to show them, Mm -hmm. which is bizarre. Yes. Cause I've met former university faculty that was basically like, Oh yeah. Like he, Leo Sprinkle came and got me and was like, you should listen to this. And then, and obviously Pat must've consented to this, I assume. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, and then this faculty got to like sit around his office while they went through like another hypnotism session. And like that, that blows my mind because like, the thing about Leo Sprinkle and the way that people talk about him is like he seems like a very nice guy. Like mm. very he's a very tall individual who yeah. um uh he's like I think he was like six foot four or something like that, but very nice and kind of just when you would hear him talk on uh like I remember the episode of In Search of that he did with um Carl Dignan's mm. case. Just like a very he sounded very down to earth. And, and such but through leo sprinkle your dad's story becomes something else entirely and and i think that's like the moment that it changes everything and would change and and would like for you i would imagine it had a big impact so i'm curious how do you feel about leo sprinkle in the story because for me after you know reading your book and I, uh, you know, I've I've been coming to this conclusion for a while now. It's that I I don't really have that high of opinion of Leo Sprinkle uh, at this point. But uh, I'm just I'm just curious how you feel about the man. Yeah, Leo Sprinkle plays a huge role in this story. Mm-hmm. Interviewing family members, it it seems like there's there's two everybody who's interacted with Leo Sprinkle in connection to, to my father's case, there's sort of two camps. Um, camp one is that Leo Sprinkle is an incredibly affable, compassionate person who didn't charge Pat anything for any of the therapy he gave him. Mm-hmm. And even when things got really tough with my father and Leo Sprinkle still talked to him, still engaged with him, which is more than I can say for my even myself at at certain times in my father's life when things got really really rough, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and I'm quite honest about that. I feel like with the article, I was I was trying to be very honest and and how I engaged with my father at certain times in in his life and my life. So at certain times, I refused to engage with him. Uh, Leo Sprinkle always did and always took his phone calls and seemed to always have time for Pat. And it seemed like he did that with a lot of UFO abductees. Then there's the other camp. Um, who is very much convinced that he played no small part in the destruction of my father's life in the fact that his land was taken from him and the fact that the university now then owns that land who Leo Springle worked for and that he stuck around to ensure that the, the, the situation remained the same. Those are the two camps in my family. And in all honesty, as I go through my research, it's hard to 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 put always put myself on one side of those camps. What I can mm-hmm. say is that it appears through my research and interviews that the situation with the UFOs on the ranch was very grounded. <laughs> yeah, 
pun not pun included whatever right yeah and <laughs> right yeah is yeah. that he was seeing ufos and ufos were landing and there was people who were seeing these with him and then there is there is the time after leo sprinkle where this turns into prophecy and god and and the end of the world and that's not to say i will say that my father from some reports had incredible striking moments of deja vu mm-hmm. gr- growing up and through his life where he would, he would say that in these moments of, of, of almost like disorientation of like seeing, seeing the world in and, and not describing it as like the future, not like he's seeing the future, but that, you know, in those feelings of deja vu where it feels like the, the future and the now are so familiar mm-hmm. that you could swear that it's, it's come before that his were, times that by 10 is that this is how we describe these these moments of like crazy deja vu but then those moments definitely multiplied even further than that after hypnosis i know you have your thoughts on hypnosis so i'd love to hear them but uh through some of the research i've done is is, it feels like hypnotic regression is not 100 percent understood on how it engages with someone's psyche and that there there could be like epigenetic you know, precursors or, or um, some aspects that, you know, maybe he, you open up these things when, when you're going back (laughs) in someone's psyche, like that kind of tickling around in someone's, someone's past. And that might've just opened up the Pandora's box and maybe Leo Sprinkle didn't know. And he was just working on the best evidence at the time. And hypnotic regression was very popular with UFO abductees at the time. And, and maybe he's just going along with that ride to some extent. He's a psychologist, you know, a trained psychologist. He he does this a lot. But, you know, if 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 I'm to, you know, flex my conspiracy muscle for a minute, it, I mean, it could be what the other camp of my parents or my family says, where there is there's some very strange interactions going on with the institution and Leo Sprinkle and my father. Yeah, there's there's definitely that conspiratorial side. But like, I, I tend to wonder, did did leo sprinkle ever recommend hey you need to get into some counseling or Mm. you need to get into because i know he you know did see psychologists that gave him kind of a clean bill of health through Mm. the university of wyoming um when leo sprinkle was early on in the in the phase of Mm. um uh, working with him but it's like did he ever do the ethical thing and say hey get your ass into therapy you need it (laughs) um i never found evidence of leo sprinkle sort of directing that i found evidence of my father going to different counselors Mm -hmm. um later on in in his life i would say that from from my judgment then this is sort of just speculating is that leo sprinkle probably would say that he he didn't do anything wrong looking back at least i didn't get that from from you know a lot of the things that i read and went through is that um, he never, it wasn't like he came to a point where he thought hypnotic regression was a bad thing and he shouldn't have been doing that to people. Um, and I don't want to cast that gavel either. Cause I don't, I mean, I will say, you know, I'm no psychologist. I don't understand it. He certainly understood it more than I do. I mean, mm-hmm. he practiced it for decades. Right. So I, I have to imagine that he had a better grip with it um, than even I could, I could level, but it's hard. And I think you can maybe agree. It's hard to look at my father's case and not see the right turn that this mm-hmm. sort of takes um, post post Leo Sprinkle. And and maybe my father was really happy about that. I don't know that um, I know a lot of 
some alien abductees at least feel very freed after their hypnotic regression because they mm-hmm. can finally recount what happens to them. And maybe that's the therapy that they need to to sort of digest what happened to them, even if it, you know, is sort of laced with in- inaccuracies, depending on how you want to gauge those inaccuracies. So in the, in the book, you call them them specifically. Mm. Um, you don't call them aliens. You call them them. I'm I'm curious. Have you ever had any kind of strange experiences of your own? Yeah, uh, a running theme through the book is, I, I I mean, it is difficult. It's very difficult for me to 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 handle as I'm going through and researching my father's stories, and I'm seeing all of this stuff that is is the same. A lot of the same things that I went through. Um, to, to give you a direct example, I mean, literally last week, I woke up screaming because I'm screaming to my wife that there are children running around my room. I know that the scientific community calls these hypnagogic or hypnogogic, I can't remember which one, mm-hmm. uh, hallucinations. But I, I mean, I will tell you 100%, I sleep with the light on <laughs> because this that those experiences are difficult. And I know my father talks about talked about this quite a bit is 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 seeing them waiting for him in the room, hearing them in the other room. Um, and I know that's all wrapped up in sleep paralysis and a lot of our um, scientific understanding for those things. But it feels this this is one thing through all my research is for someone like Richard McNally, the the famous Harvard researcher for him, for them to be like, oh, this is sleep paralysis. Um, here, take some valerian root and get some exercise. Um, it feels the feeling of that stuff is so much more visceral than than what they what they sort of try to bandaid over that. Working back backwards now, you know, growing up, we <laughs> this is going to sound strange. We saw the stars move almost like he asked them to do so (laughs) that Mm -hmm. sounds insane i know that sounds insane um and and out in basler i described this to some degrees i can't sit here and say 100 percent, just like a lot of ufo um see uh experiences i can't say 100 that that is an extraterrestrial vehicle flying around this abandoned land of wyoming but i can say that that you know very strange occurrences happened out there in wyoming and there are many people within my family and outside of my family that experienced very similar things. And I won't sit here and say that 100% I know that my father's abduction went down just how he says it went down. Um, I can't say that for sure, but I can say 100% for sure that the the things that other people say were happening, you know, the stars, um, you know, moving and coming to his ranch. It's a lot of that stuff 100% did happen. Um, and and sometimes it happened without him there, and sometimes it happened with him there, which probably led to the intense belief my mother's had, and that I had when I was young, that the, that these that the end of the world was coming. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. No, I can I can totally I can totally understand you know how that would affect anybody, especially if you are experiencing things, and it's mm. this is a continuous thing that keeps happening you know, over and over again. And like, uh, there was a story that, uh, you shared in which, uh, during one of your 
father's campaigns, there was a woman who, um, like the, the only employee that he had, quit because she claimed to have experiences with some strange figures that would come by and talk to her and tell her to do yeah. things. Yeah, that's a crazy story is he had one employee for his first campaign and she was supposed to file some very important form to to sort of get him on the ballot um, or what have you, something that really needed to be done. And she she was leaving for the day without having done it. She it had slipped her mind and she describes that she's like leaving his office, that a figure literally of a man literally appears in front of her and says, you need to go back and file that form. And she flips out, goes back, files that form, and then like quits right afterwards. <laughs> and yeah, those are the interact. Those those are very uh, um, very common interactions with this story that outsiders have in relation to Pat. The thing that is hard to reconcile is that there are legitimate experiences happening, but yet it goes to such an extreme that mm. it um it almost kind of pushes those those experiences away in in a sense because yeah now it's being recast into a totally different light it's being you know recast into uh this kind of extreme whereas people are still having these strange experiences that's yeah. that's that's very interesting to me because I think the one thing that kind of just rings true when reading your dad's story is that all of these, in the way that he talks and in the way that he um, kind of carries himself, he feels and seems true about everything that he's talking about. He, um, the, It's the way that he knows it. And it's the way yeah. that, um, you know, he's experienced it and it's the way that he expresses it. And, you know, he's experienced things with his own family and with other friends, um, you know, um, that, that one story in particular about, uh, was it a friend of theirs that they brought out there that had like oh, kind of like yeah. an abduction experience? Um, yeah. Uh, he'd tell the story about that they brought, they they were gonna him and his cousin were gonna bring a witness out to the UFOs landing on the on the ranch, and they brought him out, and a UFO lands, and this friend they bring out, in this in the most odd way, almost falls into a trance with this and walks up to touch it, and he said that this that the UFO like catches him on fire or not fire is it like bursts into flames but sort of this like as as he would describe this it, almost like i don't want to say black fire but anyways it like engulfs him and and, and zips him out of existence mm -hmm. and they flip out and they they run and they later find this friend wandering around in the the ditch like disoriented and has no idea what he's doing there or what just happened and i remember he one time I was at the street dance, you know, we have street dances here in Laramie mm -hmm. where they shut down the main streets. Uh, hopefully this is very commonplace because it's a good time. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a Jubilee Day. Kind <laughs> Jubilee of thing. Day, yeah. 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 And I remember he, uh, my father grabbed me one time we were we were talking and he, he pointed that guy out and he said, that's the guy. And I remember that the look in that 
man's face when he saw Pat pointing at him that there was pure terror in that look. <laughs> and I remember it, like at the time I was just like, this is what is happening right now. Um, but now that I, looking back, it's like, these are such odd interactions. Um, and it was an odd reaction that this man had to, to my father, like pointing at him and recognizing him uh, that he like, he sort of escapes as quickly as he can. Um, and, you know, I want to, I, I do want to say like, Pat was never, he never drank, he never did drugs and he never had his temperament was such that he never had outbursts of any sort of, uh, strong emotion. Um, if he had any strong emotional reaction, it was laughter when he was like interacting, he was very, very happy to interact with people. Um, and so I, I think it bears saying that sort of the cliche of, of the independence day um farmer drunk and experiencing mm-hmm. these alien abductions was that was certainly not his story he never once in his life ever touched alcohol or drugs and even at till the very end he was very even keel and it, it would be hard to interacting with him that you would you would sense that anything was emotionally wrong there was never any sign at all that like besides a- aside the- from Aside yeah, the from, outward, you know, after. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. The sort of the outward thing, like, I, I feel like people po- approach homeless people with already a certain sort of expectation. Mm-hmm. And so maybe something that's normal for one person looks sort of exaggerated with the homeless person. Um, besides those, those things, we met, we, through all the times of me interacting with him from a child to growing up is the things he said were, were, were spoken to us in a very even keel, like, you know, not, um, not some of the stuff you would expect from someone who's mentally ill. I would just say that. I'm curious because, uh, you know, when you were young, you know, you would go and and see him essentially on like visitation, Hmm. um, and such. How did you feel about it when you were a kid? Like, did you find it odd that you were like, Oh, Hey, you've got to go hang out with this guy for, you know, every so often. Or was yeah. it, uh, or was it, you know, like something that you look forward to every time? Yeah, I, I didn't find out Pat was my father till I was, it was probably about nine or ten, um, and at that point in time, I didn't know who my, who my father was. It was a, it was a family secret, <laughs> um, but I used to go with my, what I thought were like my cousins at the time. I used to go and hang out with Pat. And I didn't really understand like why I was being included, but we would, we would go to hang out with him for the day and we would pretty much do what he was doing that, that day. Sometimes it was very, just very normal stuff, you know, going to a restaurant or um, going back to an apartment he would have at the time. And then other times it was when he was truly homeless, it was picking cans with him. It was walking miles upon miles upon miles around the town. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I truly did not think that that was out of the ordinary. I know that's very common for people who, yeah. who report coming from those situations, but, um, I will say that my home existence in Basel was incredibly abusive Yeah, and escaping Basel was a gift. And so it almost didn't matter what we were doing with Pat. It was a true blessing <laughs> to be digging through dumpsters. And a lot of times that's how we, that's how we felt about it. Or I'll speak for myself. That's how I felt about it is that it was, it was awesome 
um, to go hang out with Pat. You know, as I got older into my teens, um, that wasn't the case. It, it definitely felt much more like a chore. And I feel like that's probably fairly common. But yeah, I didn't think anything out of the ordinary was happening. And neither did the people around town or the people, my classmates. Um, and small towns are sort of like that. The expectation, everybody knows sort of what your business is. So mm-hmm. they didn't treat us as if we were doing something out of the ordinary. They also felt like that was very ordinary for the situation, as it were. That's kind of that like small town thing is like, you know what's going on, but you play it straight. You play it yeah. you know, to the chest, like everything's normal. And like, yeah. even though it may not seem that way. And I think that's kind of one of the strengths of living in a small town, because I've lived mm. in small towns my entire life. The town I live in now, there's less than 3000 people that live here mm. and my hometown is about the same. Yeah. And, and we're talking about a region that has hosted the winter Olympics twice, which is, <laughs> it, 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 it's the weirdest thing. So like when you think of like, you know, like places that host, you know, Olympic style, you know, events. Sure. You don't think small town northern New York because like uh that's the thing is like uh Lake Placid is a town of maybe 2500 less than that and yeah like that's where the miracle on ice occurred it occurred oh my <laughs> what a culture shock it is a it is a very it very much is and it is it's a place that is designed for it now because like they try to exploit it as much as they can. Mm. But I mean, like they bring like uh, there's like hockey tournaments all throughout the winter up here and, and stuff like that. But like, it is a very big, you know, kind of culture shock and uh, living in a small town, there were definitely folks where like um, my mom was a gossiper. She had like a scanner that, uh, that she would leave in the living room and she'd <laughs> and, like, it. she'd come in and she, you know, turn down the TV is like, figure out what's going on. But it's like, you know, everybody's business, but it's just the way of life, the way that it is, you know? Yeah. It, yeah. People can just pick up your own story where you leave it off almost. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's just like, uh, or you run into somebody and, and they'll say, Oh, I heard, uh, heard, uh, you did this, uh, heard this happen. It's like, no, we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One time my aunt said that our life was like a play, like everybody, everybody was there to watch, um, who wanted to watch. Right. And, and mm-hmm. that's very much how it was growing up. Pat, you know, with a, with, with sort of a megaphone announces it. And then the whole town and everybody just, just watches as it, as it finishes its life, you know? Yeah. One of my favorite parts of the book is, uh, you went to alien con last year. (laughs) I did go to alien con. So I'm curious about your, how was your alien con experience? (laughs) Oh my God. I, when, when you say fish out of water, uh, I could not, I mean, we're driving through LA and, and I don't know how to navigate these roads. Mm-hmm. This is insane. <laughs> this is chaos. I'm trying to get to AlienCon. Um, we're driving, you know, Google Maps has taken us to all kinds of crazy back roads that apparently are two lane roads. They're not two lane roads. No. People in LA <laughs> lie to you. Google Maps lies to you. Um, I barely get to AlienCon with our life. Um, and, you know, my goal to go into AlienCon was 
not only to try to like educate myself to some degree, but also to talk to other people and sort of try to make connections through my like father's story to see if somebody a had heard heard the story or that I could just talk to people. Um, you know, Wyoming is very isolating. Even with the internet, I struggle to engage with the internet. Also, right, because it's like, you know, you're not you're not taught how to like interact with, with people on the internet in Wyoming. I feel like, or at least I wasn't. <laughs> so it's very difficult. Um, yeah. And and people don't you know really want to talk about that stuff too much around here. So I go to find people to talk to. And my when I tell you I was. I, I don't know, floored, but not maybe not in a good way, is these speakers um, and the presentations that are be putting on. It's, I mean, it could not be more removed from the experiences I've had in my life and maybe what I need answers to mm-hmm. and, and what they're talking about. I mean, they, it, it feels like they, these speakers had no idea what audience and what con they were at very much entertainment focused yeah um very much you know pay the 15 dollar entry fee into this other thing that we got going on to the side here maybe you'll find answers there um and which can be fun for a lot of people i think the people who show up knowing what alien con is about can probably have a ton of fun but i think if if you're if you're like me and you're going up to try to connect with people and find answers, then you will be sorely disappointed. Although I did get to meet Chris Bledsoe, which I thought was awesome because Chris Bledsoe's story in, in some very strange ways has, has a lot of similar, mm-hmm. similar things to, to my father's story. And that was awesome. And yeah. so in some ways, I guess you could kind of count it as a success because I got to um, talk to Chris Bledsoe. I, I bought his book. I had him sign it. It was awesome. And, uh, uh, you know, he's very kind. And so that that portion of it was great, but then you know I went and saw the 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 weaponized podcast guys. Um, oh, George Knapp and, Knapp and uh, yeah, Jeremy yeah, Cole. who are who are like really big on the on the scene right now. Um, and it just, as with all things aspects of this subject, is answers are not easy, and you want them so badly, mm-hmm. and there's there's a lot of hoopla, and at the end you're still left very much wanting somebody to give you an answer to what's happening. <laughs> yeah. So that was my experience fish out of water and, and coming back home a little empty handed, but you know, having met Chris Bledsoe, so kind of awesome. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. Uh, because like, yeah, I can only, I don't think I could handle that kind of environment just because it's like, it's big. It's it's yeah, it like the the small town conferences are like the small town events are kind of where it's at. Whether it's you know Point Pleasant, um, or you kind of uh, Whiteville um, has mm-hmm. they're starting to do something every year for um, one of theirs. Like uh, I think that's I think that's where you would probably fit in better is the smaller mm-hmm. town kind of uh, uh, events that you know UFO not, cons and stuff like that. Yeah, I think not really... the Hollywood thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because like uh, they are definitely they're pandering to an audience. They're trying to, you know, mm. make like a, a ton of money. Whereas uh, when you go to these like small town conferences, yeah, you'll have like merchants and vendors there. But like it's just a very it's a very kind of it feels more small town in, in a lot yeah. of ways and, and, and more personal and easier to connect with people. But like um 
I mean, I'm I'm glad you were able to meet Chris Bledsoe because his story is is interesting. It is, mm. it it's very weird, and it's also yeah. very weird how his son kind of tries to profit off of it too, which is yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. It does seem like he very much is is it pushes the story at least uh, yes. very very strongly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is interesting the the religious aspects of it mm-hmm. and sort of like very much closely engage with like Pat's religious aspects of it. So, yeah. Which I thought was yeah. like really interesting. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that you wrote is that a uh, quote to, to fault anyone is to fault Pat. I do not fault Pat. I fault the phenomenon for somehow dragging us all there. I fault them for what happens to people when they come knocking and reality no longer holds a new reality must be built in its absence. If you could tell them anything like right now, if they, if they were listening right now, what would you tell them? I mean, I would tell them to leave me out of it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, um, cause that's, that, that is how it's, it's always felt to some degree is that the way Pat described them and their plan, he would talk about their plan all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that in his hypnosis sessions, the aliens would tell, um, or they, right. They would mm-hmm. tell him the, about the plan and that he, you know, doesn't need to know about this part or doesn't need to know about that part. It, you know, it, it's funny. Cause I think selfishly, I, I want to say that they don't understand the consequences of what's happening mm-hmm. and, and how far those consequences go. But to, to more to the point of the plan is maybe maybe they do understand the consequences of their actions and that that all of this very very much is is in line with what's what's supposed to be happening with those actions you know it it, it very much borders on this like the religious god thing right is is to say like how dare you is is to only say like well you don't know the plan <laughs> right like yeah. um you know or or this is part of the plan this your your suffering is just one part of this and and I'm sorry that you have to suffer but this is part of the plan um there was one he used to say this quite a bit is that the the alien at one point told him that you're going to wish that you were dragged through the streets of Laramie by a horse and cart at, because what you're going to have to go through is way worse than that mm-hmm. um and and so it's like that suffering is almost built in so so to some extent is is yeah, you know, I hate to cop out, but you know, I sort, I, I want to push this story out and sort of compartmentalize this and deal with this to some extent, and then hopefully focus on things that you know he didn't focus on. Right? He didn't focus on his kids, um, yeah. and and his family life. He was completely you know, wrapped in this to you know complete fault, right? Um, but you know, I don't fault him because I can only imagine what what that can be like and and how does somebody operate and and fill out a checkbook afterwards yeah i don't know that you can so so maybe it's you know um but to reiterate they could leave me out of it if they want to that'd be great (laughs) (laughs) yeah because like why in the hell would a bunch of aliens really want to fuck up some dude's life and you, Mm. you gotta think about that at the end of the day is like Regardless of what you take away, what anybody takes away from this episode, why? Why, Pat? Why 
this well why mm. anything why why torment a guy for his entire life to you know watch like everything's basically stripped away from him to mm. for what especially after you know if the main thing is is like hey you've, you've got to build this well and you've got to maintain this land so that when the end times come people will have some place to go and then you lose that someplace why do the aliens care after that you know there's mm. it's a very it gets down to the idea that like it seems like in most alien encounters when you read about them they don't know what it's like to be human so mm. they don't know how to treat people and yeah and, you know and and stuff like that and like it, this this story is about how in in many ways of this phenomenon can ru ruin people it can um it can it, it can really ruin lives and it has like uh we, we we've seen it with uh you know there's been countless police officers that have lost their jobs because of this mm -hmm. stuff there are you know people who have you know lost their livelihoods and stuff like that so as much as this is a story about one man's interactions with whatever this is it's also the story of how it seems like it can go too far in certain ways and like really it can almost strip away the humanity of someone in many mm. ways i'm glad that his story is getting out there and and i'm glad that we can play somewhat of a role in that because i you know one thing that uh that you that you said in your book is like no podcast has covered that so um how does it feel to have a podcast now cover yeah. that? <laughs> like, I, I gotta be honest i'm 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 sort of thinking like it's the rings thing that if i can take this tape and i can mm -hmm. pass it off to you that maybe i can go on yeah and and live a much more normal life knock on wood <laughs> and yeah and and somehow put put some of this behind me and you know maybe that's part of the plan and i'm just doing my part and and now it's in everybody else's lap and i can you know watch seinfeld like everybody else <laughs> so <laughs> yeah um you know one of one of the things that you, you kind of got across in in your writing is that like part of the reason like a lot of the reason that you're doing this is to like you know kind of figure out you know who your dad was and, mm -hmm. and and all this stuff and like i could relate to that because um you're like three years younger than me um mm -hmm. we we both lost our dads around the same age i was 24 when i lost mm -hmm. mine you were what 23 yeah yeah um, i'm doing the math right <laughs> yeah my dad he passed two years before years did Mm. and um there were a lot of things that i could relate to like um your dad was a little more larger than life than mine was mine was very well known in like my town because he was in radio for like 25 years so you know his voice was hey. uh, you know well well known around town but uh you know there were a lot of i could see a lot of similarities in your dad's story and like mm. my dad's story and um i think it's uh you know good for both of us that we have you know come together to do this so yeah um the last question that i have for you 
is that um, at the end of this all, at the end of this episode, at the end of everything, because like, it's almost like to tell your dad's story is like, you know, an exorcism in its own way to get it out there. And and like, uh, especially for the way that it's affected you over your life, it's, you know, it's had a, it's had a great effect on you, you know, like it's, it's not, you know, that's, you know, obvious at this point, but like at the end of all this, um, how do you want the listeners to perceive your father's story and what do you want them to take away from it? Yeah, I think if I if I had any requests from anybody um, interacting with Pat McGuire's story, um, it would be to maybe not do what I have done in the past and Dave Politis does, um, is to sort of take his story and find one theme and then set it aside and say that's the theme of that story. Because if there's anything I've discovered by doing the research and the interviews and reexamining how like I existed with him is you know, just like so much of with the phenomenon is it's, it's hard to find definition and there might be aspects of his story that very much matter and maybe some parts that don't, but um, to sort of do the looking into and and understand that his story is like complex and nuanced in that uh, it doesn't, it's not a cookie cutter story. Um, Like some UFO tales try to make these stories Mm -hmm. into like a kind of fit into a box. Um, like so many of these stories, it doesn't. And so that's kind of what I would say is, is if you go to learn more, um, is and there, you know, there's a lot more to learn. It's, I, I hope that someone out there finds things within his story that say, that they say, oh man, David missed it because this has an implication to this, or this has mm-hmm. a connection to this. And, and I feel like that gives it, not only does it give me greater understanding, but more, more freedom to sort of let it go and let it like exist kind of outside Basler, Wyoming. So I I would say doing this, you know, is its own form of of healing from it is Mm. like, you know, getting it out there and like letting it exist on its own, I think is an important thing to do. And I think that's, you know, what you're trying to do. And I think, you know, if uh, more and more people can play a part in that in their own way, yeah, and 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 then in you know a good and ethical way, I think that'll yeah. be a great thing. Um, yeah, Jesus, and... take the wheel, like you know, <laughs> somebody else take over. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, man. So, uh, David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and and talking about your dad's story and your story and and stuff. And um, yeah, I can't thank you enough. By the way, uh, uh, just a little aside, as I spent maybe a hundred hours or more going through microfilm and I would have your podcast on just as I was going through microfilm, listening and listening and listening. And I explored in my research coming in bare, I explored all kinds of podcasts and yours was the one that I was like, this, this is a podcast, man. Like it was awesome. (laughs) So, so to be on here, it's just, I get to just be part, part of those hundreds of hours of, of podcasts. So it's great. I appreciate that. And I'm glad to be entertainment while you're looking through all of Leo Sprinkle's boxes of files and (laughs) microfilm, everything. Yes. Yeah. Oh man. So um, if people, if people want to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way they can do that? Um, My Instagram handle is uh, essentially dreidel 12 Mm -hmm. and uh 
I have, uh, I have a website that kind of connects to all my other stuff called D, um, ddrydell.com. Um, you can meet me on there. Um, I'm also on Twitter at, at Addison Bosler. So, um, oh, it's not Twitter anymore. Is it? It's X. It's how, yeah. How lame. Is is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and reach out, uh, you know, I'm always, I'm always happy to answer more questions or, or interact with anybody who has more tales or more connecting evidence. I, uh, I appreciate all of that. So, yeah, no, totally. If anybody listening, like, if you got stories, you know, like if, if there are connecting, you know, tissues here that uh, you can send his way, do it, you know, reach yeah. out because, you know, it's the great thing about podcasts. Like you can, it can lead you to things. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, man. So uh, yeah. Thank you again for, uh, for doing this. I appreciate yeah. it. And yeah, thank, thank you, you for Rob. sending me all of those, all of those files that you, you know, you, you managed to save yeah. and that uh, we're using for this episode. I appreciate yeah. it. If, you know, if anybody was going to look through them, it was Rob was going to look through them and nobody <laughs> else would look through all those, all those countless files. So uh, yeah, good on you, man. It's, uh, <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, it truly is. Thanks, man. Yeah.